I'm Sherry. And I'm Fran. Welcome to Modern Little Podcast. What a great show this week. Fran and I are continuing It's All About Love series. And this week, and maybe even more weeks, we are discussing the book, Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, written by John Gottman, PhD, and Julie Schwartz, Gottman, PhD, and Doug and Dr. Rachel Abrams. Before we get into the book, Eight Dates, Fran, you know what time it is. It's time for Weekend Shenanigans and Notable Events. had some shenanigans since our last episode share in the last two weeks now i've gone to two fall festivals last weekend i went to an artisan fair with my sister-in-law at a local winery they had 75 vendors they had music all day and of course wine it was packed one of the vendors was a clothing boutique down the road and as we approached the booth, my sister-in-law both spotted the sweater hanging up above. And at the same time, we both said, oh my gosh, look at that sweater. Well, we both ended up buying the same sweater. And we said, now, of course, you know, if we're going out together, we have to check first because we're both not wearing the sweater, but it was really cute. So I'm glad we did that. And then this past Saturday, I actually volunteered at another local wine festival. It was so much fun. And I interacted with so many people. I, Sherry, wore my vest that we got when we visited Hell, Michigan. And you cannot imagine all the comments uh, that I got on it. I would tell the people all about Hell. And I said, when you go home from the festival, you can tell them that you went to the festival and actually somebody told you to go to hell. And, <laughs> and they all laughed about that. Several bands played throughout the day and the evening and the crowd was just so into it. It was so nice to see people having such a, a great time. Last week, 14 of us here from my condo complex gathered at the home of one of our owners. We kind of wanted to make it a last hurrah because the snowbirds who live here in the condos are going to start slowly making their way to warmer climes. We all get along so well and we had a very, very enjoyable evening and it was just a lovely evening. And once again, Cher, I realized that I didn't know any of these people, not a single one when I moved back here from PA. And Cher, today marks five years that I moved back. I can't help remembering how scared I was. I was so unsure of my decision. I didn't know what the future held, but gosh, what a full exciting five years it's been. I've conquered a lot of iffy days and situations, but I did it and I am in a good place. I love that, Fran. What have you been up to? I had two wonderful adventures since we last spoke. Adventure one, I took Amtrak into Chicago and saw Tom Jones in concert. For our younger listeners who have <laughs> never heard of Tom Jones, he was big in the 60s and 70s and had comebacks in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. He is a regular judge on The Voice, in England, and he is now 82 years old. His concert was at the Chicago Theater, which holds 3,600 people, and the place was packed. 
He came out on stage with a cane because he's having hip replacement surgery at the end of this month. And his first song was, I'm old. (laughs) The man sang for two hours straight and never missed a beat. And his voice is as rich, deep, and wonderful as his younger days. I want to say something about taking the train. It is a wonderful way to travel, and I just wished I did not have to travel so far to get on Amtrak. I drove to Kalamazoo and caught Amtrak there. It was a great trip. It's a wonderful way to travel. The seats are comfortable. You don't have to go through all that rigmarole like you do at the airport, and I just love it. Yes, the train is such a lovely option. Wonderful adventure number two. Gaston and I did fall color tour yesterday in northern Michigan and the UP. We once again took the scenic route, which is M119 and the Tunnel of Trees route. And let me tell you, that road was packed. Our first stop was Goodhart, and I've never seen Goodhart so busy. I got lunch items at the general store, and then I saw a sign about St. Ignatius of Loyola Church and Cemetery and thought that would be a great place for our lunch stop. Well, Fran, let me tell you, this church was something. First of all, it was way back in the boonies, and there was a path to the Lake Michigan Beach. I never knew it existed. I do enjoy taking the road less traveled. Pictures of the church and cemetery are on my Facebook page. We then headed up to the UP to Cut River Bridge. It's about 20 miles west of St. Ignace. And what a beautiful sight on such a beautiful day. Bill and I would always go there during color season. And if you catch it at its peak, there isn't any place on earth more stunning with color. Gaston was the perfect puppy and it was a perfect day. We are welcoming back Reverend Manish Mishra Marzetti, Senior Minister at the First Unitarian Universalist Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and he is our resident relationship guru. Reverend Manish, welcome back to Modern Widow Podcast. Thank you so much, Sherry. I'm delighted to be back uh, and here with you and Fran. Hi, Manish. How are you? I'm good. It's nice to hear you. I have to say, first off, that when Sherry told me about this book, I did get it, and I am about halfway through it. I am fascinated by it. And then she suggested that we have you on to help us through it, because these are the things that you are good at. And I was so thrilled that you were familiar with the book. It's a great read by itself, but your thoughts and input are going to be great. And I have to tell you, I liked it so much and I highlighted so many passages. I had to go out and buy more highlighters. (laughs) We're going to split this into a couple of dates per episode, Manish. So today we're going to be doing date one and two, but I think you'll agree that In the introduction of this book that tells why these people wrote this and the research that they did, they kind of summed up some of basically what you're going to learn from the book, kind of misconceptions and 
how to work through those and trying to understand that going into a relationship or a marriage, you're bringing two people, two lives, two families, two sets of beliefs and ethics, and it is not always going to be easy. And there's a lot of talk about premarital counseling right now. But what I got out of this whole book is anybody going into a relationship or any people in a relationship for a while, if they read through these, they are going to see themselves on almost every page. One of the first things that successful long-term relationships are created through small words, small gestures, and small acts. They don't have to be the grandiose things that you see in movies. And that the words that pass between you as well as the expressions and gestures that accompany these words will define and determine your relationship. And also you gotta give yourself a break because life comes along and it does take its toll on relationships. We've all been there. We know how it happens. You're trying to navigate two different lives. Again, two different childhoods, two different families. You're trying to combine all those things and this is not an easy thing to do. And like they say, we all get it wrong sometimes. We miscommunicate. Mm -hmm. And when we do, we have to take a step back, have to try to repair that. But that every successful marriage and relationship has as its foundation, a deep and close friendship. And that a big part of the success or failure of your relationship depends on the conversations you have with each other. That's the idea behind this book is to get these conversations started. So on this week's episode, we are beginning the discussion of the book, Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love by John and Julie Gottman, PhDs, and Doug and Dr. Rachel Abrams. Listeners, welcome to Date Night. And as the book says, every great love story is a never-ending conversation. And boy, do I like that. Before we get into the first date night that a couple should have, there are a few guidelines. The authors ask that you read each chapter, you talk a lot, drink little or not at all, and keep a sense of humor. And also read the sections on the four skills of intimate conversation and the art of listening. So here we go. Our first date is called Lean on Me, Trust and Commitment. In a relationship, Every day we choose commitment over and over again. We choose it even when we are tired, overlooked, stressed out. So what does true commitment mean? And I love their definition. The most obvious meaning is that we resist possibilities with other people. We are faithful emotionally and sexually with our partner, and we maintain boundaries in our relationships outside the marriage. Reverend Manish, let's start off with commitment and trust in relationships. I love it. I mean, this is such a important and beautiful topic, and I love that you're both taking this on to help your listeners and others in the world think this through a little bit more deeply. The definition of commitment that you just read out, it's, from my perspective, a little old-timey. It's not wrong. 
It's not wrong, but there are obviously many kinds of relationships that are highly successful that include folks not being married to one another, but living together. And often in elder years, people choose to do that for a variety of reasons that can be related to benefits and things like that. It's about two people coming together and making a commitment to one another. Folks who know me and my family and or me and my marriage to my husband, Jeff, who's been on your show as well, would probably be surprised to hear this. But early on in our relationship, which is now going on something like 13, 14 years, I remember specifically the day, the moment where Jeff and I had a disappointment that we were navigating. Something that was important to me just hadn't happened in the way that I was expecting. And it was related to a holiday celebration that in my culture, the biggest one of the year for us in that culture and that tradition. I felt so hurt and disappointed, especially given that I had told him in advance about all of this. As we were kind of talking through the disappointment, the anger and frustration I felt, I didn't say any words to this effect overtly, but he accurately picked up that on some level on the inside, I was assessing or holding some thought around the line of like, yeah, you know, if he can't see that this is so important to me, I'm out of here. You know, like I can move on, I can find another relationship. And I, I wasn't saying that out loud, but it through tone and demeanor, he accurately picked up on that. And he did one of the biggest gifts that anyone I've ever been in a relationship has done with me. He articulated and verbalized that. He said, I feel like when we're not on the same page about something that you go to this place where you could bolt. You could leave the relationship, decide we're done and just move on. And it scares me. It was a very courageous and bold thing of him. What we realized in kind of just looking at that together was, are you committed to one another? And what that means really is not getting your way on everything. No two human beings get their way on, on anything and everything. Any friendship, let alone intimate relationship, requires compromise and exchange, a back and forth. I started to realize that so many relationships, whether they're friendships, intimate partnerships, or even your relationship with a work setting or work employer, commitment is the starting point. Like, are you committed to this thing, this setting, this person, this human being, and are they committed with equal depth to you? And if the answer to that is yes, the rest are details. The rest is finding the calmness and the grounding from which to talk about disappointments or challenging and hard things. That's a practice in and of itself. My experience is it's always doable if both people are deeply committed to one another. I'm so glad you said that, and I'm pretty sure that's why this is the first date, trust and commitment, because I feel if you do not have that, you do not have a relationship. Fran was uh, synopsizing a little bit about trust, you know, and how the Gottmans talk about trust. Sure, it's big things, but it's also small things. A little smile or a pat on the shoulder, you know, at the end of the day, or it's a, a kiss good as the person's leaving for work or each person is starting their day. These are small things, but cumulatively, they're not small, actually. And you can draw the same correlates for a friendship. Friendships are deepened when there's a collection of small things that have transpired or happened that make us feel warm and fuzzy and say, ah, this is a beautiful person. I really value them. I'm starting to feel this trust and commitment to them. Well, and they had just a very short statement that kind of summed up as far as a commitment. It could be a work relationship. It can be anything. It's giving your word on something and then being true to it. 
Yes, that is definitely a part of how trust is established. So integrity is the word that's often used for that. Right. Are you are you actually following through on what you're telling me, what you've either committed to me or said to me or promised me? Are you in alignment? Do you actually act that out? Is that what you actually do? And the other piece of integrity is, is your behavior in alignment with how you're presenting yourself and talking and relating to others? What happens is we do a subconscious analysis of all this. It's never like we're sitting there like, huh, I wonder if this person has integrity. It can be in an extreme situation, but typically these are subconscious and very subtle things that are going on, which is one of the reasons why we have that adage that first impressions matter a lot. They actually do. And there's a lot of psychological research on that. It behooves us to present as people of integrity, that if we say something or make a commitment or a promise that we do that in the way that we intended or follow through with additional communication if we can't. And people are watching us to see that there's integrity between how we present ourselves and how we actually move in the world. You and I talked about this a little bit, and I wondered if you would talk about it a little bit as far as when you're in, in a relationship or when you're starting a relationship, that part of it goes wrong when one or both of you are looking over your shoulder thinking the grass is going to be greener. I loved the part of the book that they used the whole scenario of Alice in Wonderland, wondering if you've chosen the right rabbit to follow down the rabbit hole. You and I talked about that. Would, would you talk about that? I never doubted my husband's commitment to me, commitment to our marriage or his trust. And it's one of the things that I truly miss of all the things I miss. And people always looking over their shoulder for something better. I don't get it. A lot of people have had experiences of hurt and pain and disappointment. So often that instinct to run or flee or find something else is from that place of, I've been hurt, I've been burned, I've been taken advantage of, I've been treated poorly in the past. And so it's almost like this over-cautiousness or over-worry that that could happen again. And it's not every situation, but that is often something that could be driving that kind of approach or understanding. But I love what you said, Sherry, with such heartfelt feeling and emotion. What we're talking about, and, and we human beings forget this, but we know it when we actually stop to think about it. It's not even necessarily stuff that's articulated with words. And whether it's an intimate partnership or a friendship, we pick up fairly accurately on lots of little subtle cues about how invested the other person is in us. If they're not, why would we be? That is a brilliant way of putting right. it. How much investment is there in this? And you're right. If you're not fully invested, then boy, I guess you got to have several really, really hard talks. So my husband modeled this for me, right, uh, years and years ago, and I've tried to live into it a little bit that if I'm uncertain about what's happening in a friendship or a relationship I care about, you can articulate it and say, look, I'm in this. I'm in this with you, with this work team, with this committee, this group I'm volunteering with, with you as a best friend. I'm in this. Are you? Because I can't tell right now. I don't know what's happening right now. Are you? I want to believe you are, but if we're not, then let's talk about it. What do you think the reason is that most couples don't do that? Are they afraid of the other person saying, I don't agree, I'm not comfortable talking about this, if this is the way this relationship is going to be? I just want to enjoy the relationship and I don't want to have any of the hard stuff to work on. Is it a fear of rejection? Like, what do you think? There's a bunch of things that 
can at times all intersect. So think of all the training we do as human beings through education, including undergraduate or graduate level education. We study history, we study sciences, we study math that we never use again once we're, we're done learning calculus equations and all that. And yet, what class do any of us take on human relational skills? Most of us have done nothing, right? There's this assumption that we're all skillful at this, and yet there's nothing built into our cultural framework where people are actually learning communication skills, relationship skills. That is not an insignificant problem. One, it's an undervalued skill in our culture, and yet it's critical to our flourishing that we learn how to communicate well with other human beings. Two, then fear gets activated. Absolutely. The higher the stakes, the more afraid we're going to be. That like, what if they are done with me? What if we're not clicking anymore? Uh, what if we've grown apart? Like that is super scary to invite the possibility of talking about that. And yet you can't get to the other side of it at times without needing to just say, no, 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 no. Okay, we've named it, but we're not. We haven't grown apart. We are still committed to each other. This friendship, this spouse, this work team, whatever it is, we are in this together. Now, the third piece is actually kind of insidious. It often circles back to the first piece that we don't teach communication skills in our culture really at all. And this came up earlier in our conversation, the word familiarity and familiarity leading to miscommunication. This is so common in long-term relationships, friendships, especially intimate relationships and marriages where people are around each other all the time. We arrive at a mental shortcut. When the person says X, this is what they mean. When they say Y, this is the background and all the context of why they're saying why, et cetera, et cetera. We arrive at these mental shortcuts. And a skillful couples therapist, marriage therapist, you know, when people are having difficulty in their marriage communicating with one another, this is the starting point of most marriage and couples therapy, which is like, you just heard something. What's running through your head right now? What set of assumptions are there based on the thing your spouse or intimate partner just said in the middle of a couples therapy session? And then the therapist will say, okay, now you've said your piece, you can't respond. The first person who offered the thought, what are your actual assumptions or background stuff? Or what is it you were looking for in saying that? And frequently the mental shortcuts we have arrived at over time in long-term marriages, they start to break down because they're inaccurate. Usually both people are on a journey of growth in parallel. The shortcuts are often dated and they don't necessarily still work. Getting past familiarity to actually hear one another well often does require a marriage therapist. I think that a lot of times what happens is that you're having problems and neither party says anything. It's easier to be in denial that something is bothering one of you or both of you. Once you verbalize that, that it is true, it's going to come true. Mm -hmm. And that is very scary. And I think that's what keeps a lot of people from doing the discussions. In the book, the Gottmans talk about there are many ways people break trust in a relationship. And here are the 10 most common, not showing up on time, not making their partner a priority, not being there when their partner is hurt or sick, not contributing to the well-being of the family. It's me rather than we. Not keeping promises, keeping secrets, lying, humiliating or putting down the partner in public or private, 
committing an act of emotional or physical infidelity and being physically violent. That's my question. So someone has broken the trust. And some of these trust issues, I think, are repairable, easily repairable. How do you start that conversation, Manish? That needs a lot of help and support. By the time you're at a place where trust has been broken in a very, very painful, hurtful way, two people just on their own trying to figure that out, that is a tall order because resentment and pain have to be navigated. It is possible, you know, I mean, sometimes those types of breaks in a relationship, those types of hurts and pains in a relationship can take years to mend and work through and arrive at the other side of. And there are probably many, many examples amongst your listeners of individuals and couples who have done just that, either with a spouse or with a, with a close friend, where the, some repair work has been needed. There too, it takes some stick to itness. You know, I was speaking with somebody in the past month or two, and they were relating to me just in general, difficulties in the marriage, a marriage that they're in. And I said, are both of you committed to one another? Are you 110% committed to working through whatever it is and is your partner? And the response I heard was, I don't know. I know I am. I don't think my partner is. And that is telling it does take two to really make any deep friendship or marriage work. And if both people are not wanting to do the repair work and the healing work, and often if the pain is deep enough, that individual might not want to do repair and healing work. This has been a great discussion about the first date, lean on me, trust and commitment. Let's move to date number two. Date number two is agree to disagree, addressing conflict. And I think we already touched on a little bit of that. As an example, your disagreement about your upcoming holiday and it was a conflict. There were a lot of different outcomes that could have had, but the two of you were committed to each other enough to discuss it and you got past it. One of the first things that the Gottmans say in this chapter is one of the great relationship myths is that if you never fight, then that means you have a good relationship, which we all know is absolutely false. Mm -hmm. The state of peacefulness that passes for bliss is actually just the quietness that results from avoiding conflict mm. because conflict happens. If you enter into any long-term relationship thinking that the hallmark of its success is a lack of conflict, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and failure. What you're opening up here is not just about interpersonal relationship. This is also one of the overarching needs of our culture and our society today is how are we navigating differing needs, disagreements, different life perspectives and experiences, all of that. And we're not doing a great job as a society and a culture. My sense of that is that the collective experience at the societal level is because we struggle with doing this also at the interpersonal level, at the level of a friend or a marriage or a small community. I'll share a small anecdote. I grew up in a household where what I saw when there was pain or conflict was silent and withdrawal. One parent would decide to punish the other by being silent and withdrawn 
But just as you've shared, the silence is not actually solving anything. And in fact, it might gloss over the differences or the pain that need to be healed and talked about. That is the opportunity that allows for deepening. So the thing that I've had to learn as an adult over many, many years is that the points of tiny rupture, if they're handled without it becoming a major explosion, you have to deal with the little things before they become the volcano. But if you do that, each time you work through something small successfully together, it deepens trust, it deepens affinity, it deepens love and respect. It is the working through the small things that make working through the big things possible. Jeff is my marriage number two and the only one I need going forward. My first marriage was one where I can say in retrospect, both my spouse and I married each other thinking we would each grow out of certain pieces that we were, become different people. And I wanted him to be different in certain ways and figured, oh, surely 10, 15 years from now, you'll have outgrown all this certain things. And he thought that about me. Guess what? Neither of us changed. That's kind of almost the imprint, right? What we saw often in our families of origin is our first go-to around how we think conflict should be navigated and or how we deserve to be treated in the middle of conflict or what our instinctive response is when we're hurt or in pain, it's often deeply linked to whatever was modeled and viewed as normative or acceptable in those families of origin. And they are malleable, right? We're always learning and growing so we can change beyond whatever those behavior patterns were from our younger years. I know it's hard when something comes up and I want to deal with it this way. That's not how you deal with it. I'm only acting on what I saw growing up with or a previous relationship. I'm not taking this out on you, but I'm dealing with it in the same way that I saw it being dealt with. And can that be changed? Absolutely. And that's a beautiful way to model that conversation, Fran, what you just did, because it's essentially like, look, I know I'm a work in progress. I'm not claiming I'm perfect. I've got everything figured out. But the things that I know are that when I'm hurt, this is what's happening inside of me. And this is what I want to do. I want to run away. I want to hide. I don't want to talk to you. Even though I know the healthiest thing I could do is to do the opposite of that and just tell you, look, I'm feeling really hurt right now. I may not have been intentional, but I need to know you can see that you caused me pain. That's actually the thing that's needed. Now, here's the interesting thing, because you've both got me wondering now, holding different identities for me, have you both found that men in your lives are able to have those kinds of conversations? Not every single one. Talking about the fact that our culture doesn't teach communication skills in general. And then I think you've got to add on to that how gender is acculturated in our broader culture, meaning how you learn what it means to be a man or a woman or however you identify. There's certain stereotypes that are there that, you know, those who identify as men are not supposed to be weepy or talking about emotions or talking about feeling hurt or slighted. That too compounds the challenge of getting to really good conversation in a relationship. None of us is a perfect communicator and each relationship comes with a set of problems, a different set of problems because every person is unique and different from the others. And some sets of problems are going to be with us no matter who the other partner is because many of our problems travel with us. Because there are learning needs and our growth needs. Yep. I thought the way that they kind of summed it up is that there's two different kinds of problems and conflict. One is solvable problems and one is perpetual 
problems, solvable problems. You leave the toilet seat up, you forget to pick the kids up. Where are we going to go on vacation? Those are all solvable. They're annoying, but they're solvable. But the perpetual problems are the ones that center on the fundamental differences in the two people. They made an interesting comment in the beginning of the book. We don't want to be clones of each other. What relationship would ever go forward if you were clones of each other? You can't solve your personality or lifestyle differences, nor should you try. Whether it's a marriage or a spouse or a longtime dear friend, we're initially attracted to that person usually for the ways in which they are different than us. And it is very exciting and attractive and interesting. Often common interests can be a part of that too. But nonetheless, here's this exciting person who is different. And as you get to know somebody, you often pick up on the quirks and the idiosyncrasies and the things that the person is not good at. We often pick up on those or the hints of those early enough let's say in the first six months or a year of a relationship. And yet it's precisely those things that we were generous about in the early days of the relationship when everything was fun and exciting and new. Suddenly in year five or year eight or year 15, we're being driven crazy by like, they're not good with the finances and I have to do all the finances myself. And it's such a drag and it can become a resentment. But we knew from the beginning that that was not this beloved person's strength. Over time, it's almost like the practice becomes needing to intentionally remind yourself, but I love this human being for these reasons and make the list as long as you can. And then you go to a brand new page and I know that they are not good at all these things and I forgive them and I love them anyway. They said that the problem is when you don't try to resolve the things, if one or both partners are uncompromising, you start to distance yourself from each other emotionally, and that spells the end of the relationship. Manish, I think that's a beautiful way to end the first episode of The Eight Dates. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a joy to be in dialogue with you both, Sherry and Fran. I love what you're doing, and thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for being on Modern Little Podcast. Thanks, Manish. Tell Jeff we said hi. I will. We want to thank our executive producer for her continued expert advice and critiques of our podcast. A very special thanks to Reverend Manish. It's always great having him on our show. Of course, we want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in and listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Fran, we had great comments this week about the Courtney and Diana Blanchard's love story. Terry from Bear Lake wrote, enjoyed Courtney and Diana's cute love story. They sound like they're having fun the second time around. Camille wrote, laughing out loud, loved listening to this podcast, had me cracking up. And Julie from Cape Coral wrote, this podcast was awesome. If you would like to write a comment, our email address is modern.whittle.podcast at gmail.com. Again, modern.whittle.podcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Instagram at modernwhittlepodcast. You can listen to our podcasts on the following apps. Anchor, Spotify, Breakers, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. I'm Sherry. 
And I'm Fran, and I just wanted to reiterate that Courtney and Diana, when you listen to them, they are the epitome of fun and joy. You can just hear it in their voices. You can hear the love. And I actually think that that whole attitude, everything that they represent ties in beautifully to this episode and our next few episodes, just because essential conversations that we know that they had before they chose to marry. Our next few episodes, we are going to continue the discussion on the book Eight Days because there is a lot to talk about. This week's ending quote comes from Orson Welles. I really, really like it. And I think you will too, Cher. If you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. See you next time. seems to grow there isn't any end to my devotion it's deeper dear by far than any ocean i find that day by day you're making all my dreams come true so come what may i want you to know i'm yours alone and i'm in love as we go through the years day by day Bye.